Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Michael Leader. I'm David Jenkins. And I'm Lillian Crawford. And today we'll be talking about James Gunn's legion of anti-heroes spectacular The Suicide Squad, Edgar Wright's music documentary The Sparks Brothers, plus a short interview with the director himself, and in Film Club, the heavy metal documentary that out Spinal Tap, Spinal Tap, Anvil, the story of Anvil. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, welcome back listeners and welcome back David, always a pleasure to speak with you and welcome Lillian. You were last on the show at the end of tail end of last year talking about Mank in our Mank special, but since we've relaunched we'd love to take the opportunity to let our regular familiar contributors reintroduce themselves to the listeners. So Lillian, who are you, what do you do, where can we read your work? So I'm a freelance film and culture writer, Um, I have written for BBC Culture, Sight and Sound, and Little White Lies quite often. Um, I also run a blog and podcast called Listen to Lillian, all about um, British film history and um, hidden stories of queer and female filmmakers. Um, So, yeah, that's what I do. (laughs) That's a great idea for a podcast. Where can we find it? We should just search for it wherever we get our on um, It's on... Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google, the usual places. Absolutely wonderful. So unfortunately, we're not going to be talking about many of the stars of British film history um, on on this show, because we're starting off with The Suicide Squad, this great, crazy, over-the-top comic book spectacular. That's coming up first. So let's do a little bit of synopsis. This comes straight from Warner Brothers. From writer-director James Gunn comes the superhero action-adventure The Suicide Squad, featuring a collection of the most degenerate delinquents in the DC lineup, including... This is a very long list. Prepare yourselves. Bloodsport, Peacemaker, Captain Boomerang, Ratcatcher 2, Savant, King Shark, Blackguard, Javelin, and everyone's favourite anti-hero, Harley Quinn. So this is a sequel to David Ayer's Suicide Squad from a few years ago, commonly held up as the one of the worst comic book movies to date. They've added a the, they've changed the director, James Gunn, poached from Marvel for this film. Lillian, should we be excited? Should we bother with this one? No, is the short answer, I would say. Um, I'm, I would actually say that Ayer's Suicide Squad is possibly more coherent and enjoyable than than this film. Um, I don't know if that's because I saw Suicide Squad fairly recently and I watched it on a DVD when I could turn the sound right down. Um, This is a very loud and boisterous film, um, which I I think the last superhero film I saw in a cinema might have been, I mean, DC film I saw in a cinema might have been Man of Steel. Um, which which I left with my head absolutely spinning, and I vowed never to watch a DC film in a cinema again. Um, and, <laughs> uh, seeing it in the super screen at um, Cine World Leicester Square was certainly um, reified that for me. Um, it's just so loud. <laughs> so if if that if that's people's things, and that's gonna get them back into a cinema then 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 great but um yeah i i i did um sort of it took a while for my senses to sort of come back to me after after seeing this film 
It certainly does seem quite colourful and self-consciously crazy and, and so on. But Lillian, where do you normally land with comic book movies? Is, are you generally a fan or is it generally not your thing? Just so we can contextualise what you mean when you say this maybe isn't one, one for you. Yeah, I love Marvel. Um, I've, I've liked the particularly sort of since phase three of the MCU. I've really enjoyed the more sort of playful um, and interesting films that they've been making. Um, I particularly enjoyed... Uh, Black Widow the other week. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've not so much the action scenes that doesn't really do it for me. I like the scenes where people are sort of sitting around tables talking and acting. Um, Logan's quite good for that. Um, but yeah, in terms of DC, I liked Birds of Prey. That is a great mm-hmm. film. I really enjoyed that. Um, I think that the big difference between how Harley Quinn is portrayed in that film and um, the two Suicide Squad films is that she's just sort of allowed to be her own multi-dimensional character whereas in this film and in Suicide Squad she's very much there to be sort of ogled and fetishized there's 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 several sequences in this film where she is literally just sort of reduced to being a beautiful woman in a dress who sort of like is to be seen on the screen and she's sort of fetishized in that way um there, there, there's definitely some like kinky stuff here that i would imagine is coming straight out of james gunn's sort of fantasies um there's a scene where she breaks a man's neck with her thighs and i just sort of rolled my eyes at that um <laughs> yeah i i really didn't like this film <laughs> Okay, so James Gunn, very much positioned as a titan of the comic book movie genre off the back of Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2, I should say volume 1 and volume 2 to be uh, to be precise, coming off the back, you know, starting out in quite schlocky B-movies, now he's helming these multi-million dollar blockbuster projects. Um, David, what did you make of The Suicide Squad and do you see the hand of James Gunn in this? Yeah, it's a very... It's a very James Gunn film. Um, I remember when I was very young, prob- probably about 15, 16, seeing... Do you, I don't know if you remember, there was, a, there was a TV channel called Bravo, and it was a bit like a kind of proto-TCM. But then uh, definitely in the evenings, they would show quite sort of schlocky horror films. And I remember, like, my friend had cable... Uh, we didn't have cable so we're at my friend's house and we 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 happened across a film called tromeo and juliet by the the troma studios which is which was actually written by james gunn and i i do have very vivid memories of that film because it has lots of very obscene lewd things happening in it i remember kind of i think romeo has a giant sort of killer phallus in it or something like that and it's it seemed like in it's it's got a very kind of james gunn sort of humor vibe to it uh, and then he yeah he did this film called super as well which was a more kind of it was his first kind of like almost sort of redux of of the comic book movie when it was still kind of in its infancy and it was his it was a kind of low budget violent um you know quote unquote adult take on on kind of comic book lore uh and yeah they obviously thought that he had that kind of sensibility and knowledge and uh for for, for that for that world that would make him a good fit for, for taking on these kind of behemoth um projects like ensemble projects and you know whereas the i think his guardians of the galaxy film definitely have a kind of you know toned down tamped back james gunn that is more of the sort of nostalgia and hitting that kind of PG-13 crowd with a few little yucks along the way. He's kind of... This is this is the sort of first occasion where he's been able to kind of go f- bring kind of full Tromeo and Juliet energy to to a to a kind of studio project. And it's... And it is really... You know, it's it's almost kind of like the, lev- the sort of splatter levels are like off the charts sometimes. I mean, it, it's, it's all fairly kind of... It's all done in a very kind of comic hue... Um, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's lots of exploding heads and people being ripped apart, and you know, it's, it's all done in a very kind of like playground style, and not it, the, the, 
the kind of things that you would see in a in your usual kind of you know um aa or, or you know 18 rated computer game you know but um <laughs> yeah i mean the th- i think the thing for me uh, just yeah the thing for me with this film is just i just cannot get vibe with james gunn's humor i just found it like deathly unfunny and he's got this kind of i call it i may maybe something like you call it like psych humor you know where something sincere is happening and then like you're kind of 16 ton weight falls out of the sky and crushes someone randomly it's very like monty python in that way it's kind of like let's cut through this kind of supposed moment of sincerity with like an exploded you know someone's head just explodes isn't that hilarious and that just kind of happens over and over again in the film um if i was to if i was to sort of drag it back i would say that i think that my memory of the first suicide squad is definitely not negative it's definitely very negative I I say, I say I think just because I th- I found like the 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 performance is quite appealing especially um uh, Idris Elba and um the uh the new, very 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 newcomer Daniela Melchior and she's she's a real natural she plays this character called Ratcatcher 2 um and yeah she sort of definitely brings a bit of kind of spark to an energy to the to the proceedings um but yeah I just it it like it was one of those I, I i think if it had been like 90 minutes it would have been just it would have been fine but that, but it, it's it's 90 minutes and then you've basically went at the point where you think you're at the end there's a whole other film to come and it's just tiring mm. beyond words um yeah I, I i just yeah was really it dragged dragged like a mother <laughs> <laughs> okay well let's put some scores on the suicide squad and we can move on to the next film so lillian i'll come to you first for this this is in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect yeah i think my anticipation was definitely a one as you said suicide squad is a very bad film would be a one-star film um james gunn's humor does not appeal to me at all he he has a tendency to think something's much funnier than anyone else does and then to really milk it there was there's a gag in um guardians 2 about someone called taserhead and there's a very similar gag in this film and it just keeps going and no one is finding it funny um and then in enjoyment a, a, a one and in retrospect a one i i, I just I, I'm kind of tired of these films. They don't, they're not doing anything new or original that we haven't seen before. Um, I hope people get bored of them and we can have more fun loving Marvel films to enjoy. David. I, I'm probably going to go. I, it, for me, it wasn't a complete, I don't think it was a complete write off. I think there was some sort of, bit elements in there that 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 were definitely salvageable i mean you know um i uh it's probably twos across the board for me like i mean the fact that they've sort of remade this quite bad film so soon just in in itself feels like a bizarre thing to do so i mean it's it's barely like five years since the previous one and it's you know it's so it's such a kind of like although it's a sequel in name only really it's it's you know it's a reboot it's a sort of super fast reboot where they've completely changed the tone um it's still very obnoxious it's still obnoxious though so yeah it's twos twos across the board i'm not like it's not it wasn't like for for me twos are worse than ones in a way (laughs) because like twos are just like you're shrugging yeah i'm shrugging (laughs) sorry (laughs) Although I must say, I think that must be a first for Truth and Movies. Maybe go, go back through the archive. I don't think we've had straight ones in a review before, at least on the podcast. I'm sure it's, been, it's happened before in the magazine, David. But listeners, I know there are fans of James Gunn out there and of the Suicide Squad that's been getting, you know, people have been giving good reviews. If you do like the Suicide Squad or agree with Ily and David, let us know at the usual channels at Lives on Twitter or Truth and Movies at TCO London. Dot com. Up next, we're going to be talking about the Sparks Brothers. But first, we had the rare and wonderful opportunity to speak with director Edgar Wright about making his first music documentary about the cult band Sparks, who'd been 
creating music for five decades, going through various phases of success, rise and fall, appealing to various different cult audiences. Of course, music has been very important to Edgar Wright throughout the years. Just watch one of his films and there's sure to be a great soundtrack and many musical moments in there. But this is his first documentary and that's where I started with my first question. Edgar Wright, thank you so much for joining with me for Truth and Movies. So we're going to be talking Sparks today. So, But up until now, music has played such a role in your fictional filmmaking career, from the great soundtracks, the amazing musical sequences. I uh, particularly loved the focus scene <laughs> towards the end of Baby Driver. Um, however, this is your first foray into music documentaries, so I wondered... Has the music documentary filmmaking ever been on your radar as something you'd wanted to do one day? I don't know if I'd ever vocalized it out loud. Um, I, I definitely love uh, watching documentaries and particularly music documentaries. And I, I, I'm kind of a sucker for a music documentary, whether I like the band or not. <laughs> Sometimes the, the more interesting ones are about bands that you don't think you care for necessarily. But the way that this came about is that as a Sparks fan, I found myself saying aloud that somebody should do a documentary about them. And uh, because I felt that they were the best and most influential band who did not have a documentary about them. And, and also I felt that even though they had a lot of fans and sort of pockets of fandom around the world, they're one of those bands that needed a bit of an overview because even people who did know Sparks didn't necessarily know the whole story and splitting time between um, London and Los Angeles as I had been for the last 10 years I was very aware that people had different images of who Sparks were or their key album was a different album and that was fascinating to me so it would be wrong to say that all Sparks fans would go straight to Kimono My House because that's not true like in the States people say oh angst in my pants you know my favorite Sparks album well that's the, that's the first Sparks album I ever had so I was I was kind of curious about their 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 story is such an interesting one because it would be wrong to say that they've never had success because obviously they have. But up until maybe like this century and the internet providing a bit of an equilibrium, they had had success in different territories at different times. And as such, their story was kind of uh, more of a zigzag than like a straight kind of <laughs> like arc going up you know absolutely and that's actually for me that's the area of discovery for me that whole 80s period where they had their k-rock phase and you have the your your sort of flea or jason schwartzman type guests who um who, who can speak to that because i go up to yeah the Maroda era is, is where i know them and then there's a sort of blank until more recently when they start up again so that was the real area of discovery for me but i suppose in the process of putting this together you have so many great sources of footage and insight. You have, of course, the stuff where you're shadowing them on tour. You have such great access to the brothers themselves and then all these talking heads. So how did it start to take shape in your mind about the sort of documentary you wanted to do? Because there are almost as many ways of doing a music documentary as there are music documentaries. Yeah, I think, um, I think even in making it, there's some things that, we did that like felt like oh this is good but this is from a different kind of documentary like strangely enough there's some stuff that's going to be on the blu-ray there's quite a lot of extras and extra stuff as you might imagine and one of them is that we did a bit more on location stuff getting ron and russell to revisit their old haunts and and it's really sweet and there's some and i put it all on the dvd because but it sort of felt as you were doing that stuff as you were shooting it and especially when you tried to edit it in it felt like well, this feels like a separate arena of just this. <laughs> like, it doesn't feel like it fits into what's kind of happening. And I think what was, what became to take shape very quickly is that they as talking heads and everybody else chiming in as an oral history was the way to tell the story. Because Ron and Russell are incredibly charming, smart, funny, self-deprecating, um, you know, very aware of themselves as interviewees and that's kind of rare where they're they're not afraid to laugh at themselves or even like smile at their misfortunes which is which is different to kind of 
a lot of other artists who can't even sort of talk about the bad times necessarily. On the flip side, it's like they're too modest to say the things about them that you need to bring in other people to say. And it's in, in, a, in a way that sort of is almost the reason to have the other talking heads is to say the things that Ron and Russell themselves won't. And I, I guess I guess I'm a sort of fan of I, I like that oral history format in in books. And I thought that there was a way of doing that in the documentary because there are so many people to speak about Sparks over 50 years. I myself interviewed 80 people for the documentary and I probably could have gone on if like we didn't have to stop at some point and make a movie <laughs> because I was quite happy to interview, you know, there's a couple of people who didn't make it. Like one, one, one or two of whom I just put their interviews on the DVD. Cause I thought, well, you know, the engineer on Kimono my house is like, he's got a good story to tell. Unfortunately, his 15 minutes couldn't make it into the movie, but it doesn't mean it's uh, not usable. So, so I think that that was the thing that was, and also I, I guess, speaking to what you just said about the different periods it's interesting that you mentioned that your knowledge goes up to 79 and then there's like a gap until 1994 when they came back now what's amazing in that period is that ronald russell did not tour the uk between the years of 1975 and 1994 Hmm. so there's like a 19 year gap in touring the only thing they did at that was they appeared on tvam and Wogan on like 1985 to promote um, Change, the single. But they were sort of absent and they were in the States trying to crack the States. And like you said, it's like in the same way that you didn't know anything about the 80s period, some of the people that were all about the 80s period weren't aware of like the Island Records or Kimono My House or hadn't seen them on Top of the Pops. So with that, so I was very aware that you could tell a story of a a 50 year career with talking heads and basically keep kind of like gathering fans as they do. And that in itself is going to be hopefully increasingly impressive because you get, you know, you're like an, an hour plus into the documentary and then suddenly like here comes Jason Schwartzman to talk or here comes flea and Beck. Like, so I, I knew that I knew that that would be quite powerful. And, and, and also I guess the range of interviewees was an attempt to show their enormous footprint in culture. I I knew as well, and this is part of my pitch to Ron and Russell, that to embalm them as a 70s band was absolutely not what they wanted. Sparks, I think, if you see them in any interview, one of the things that I think is like a really powerful thing about them is that they've always thought of themselves and thereby other people do as well because it's true as a going concern Hmm. and that to me was the thing that was like i guess like my my fandom turned into full-on obsession in the last 20 years because whenever i was like working once i started making films you know and then i'd be you know in between films i say wow like you get like a mojo new music cd and go wow new sparks or like (laughs) sort of wow like sparks are on six music oh sparks are on sparks are on the a-list on six music sparks are on jonathan ross like and it was this thing that they they would with new singles which was like extraordinary and i think in a way because sparks have had that career where they've always been beloved by some but they've never reached the mainstream stratospheric success of queen but in a strange way the music press and has given them a stay of execution like they've never like sort of fallen they've never fallen foul of that tall poppy syndrome because i think there's always like a bunch of music fans who are rooting for sparks because they're if they are the perpetual underdog that's not a bad place to be because it's like and I'm sure if you went back in time and said to Ron Russell, said, would you like to have like Queen's size success in the 70s? Or would you like to have what you have now? I would bet you they'd vote for the latter. Because what an amazing thing 50 years later that they've got two movies out mm. in the same summer. And, you know, like, and countless, countless artists saying like, naming them as a primary influence. Absolutely. And you mentioned they have two films out this summer with the uh, Leos Karash film as well. And it, it really struck me. I hadn't, you know, it, it hadn't really occurred to me just how cine they were and how many potential film projects they'd had over their career. 
And I wondered how much was that on your radar? Because it's a really fascinating thread you weave, of course, from the potential pun of the Sparks Brothers, all the way through to mentioning you know, in their lyrics, all the way to the Imar Bergman project, but then also the aborted film project throughout. Was that something that you were aware of as a fan? I was aware of the Tim Burton project, but I wasn't aware of the full complexities of that. And and then getting to know them and reading up, researching, I found out about the Jacques Tati project wow, yeah. as well. So, but it's funny, the first time I ever met them for coffee in 2015, after a fateful uh, direct message, <laughs> like I discovered that Sparks were following me on Twitter. I felt like a dum-dum for not having followed them before. I, I didn't even, you kind of think that Sparks is too enigmatic to have a Twitter page. And then not only did they have one, but they were following me. So I immediately followed them back and messaged them and said, oh, is this really the band? I'm such a huge fan. They said, yes, this is Russell. We're big fans of your movies. <laughs> uh, where are you based? Oh, I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, we live in Los Angeles. Oh, well, we should get coffee. Yeah. How about tomorrow? literally all happened like that it's crazy and then funny enough at the first um coffee that we had ron and this was 2015 so this is nine, uh, uh six years ago they mentioned that leos carrox was interested in doing a film of this album which they'd recorded but not released that he'd heard the demo of this album for annette which they originally planned to record and tour like tommy you know, like a like a Who style concept album, and I, as a sort of Sparks fan, but also as a Leos Carrick fan, I was like, "Oh my god, that sounds amazing! I hope that happens." And the irony is, is that when we started making the Sparks Brothers, right through, I basically shot nearly all of the Sparks Brothers before I started shooting Last Night in Soho. Mm-hmm. The two go hand in hand. I literally finished the first draft of Last Night in Soho, started shooting Sparks, and then through Sparks kept doing drafts and pre doing pre-production and then did a bit of filming of, and then filmed the Sparks brothers right up until I had to start prepping Soho. And then during the shoot of Soho, we heard, Hey, Annette's got the green light because it hadn't necessarily been definitely happening. So I had said, as soon as I heard that, I said, we have to go to Brussels and shoot them on the set of Annette. Thank God. Thank you, Leos Carrick, for giving us an ending to our B-plot in the movie. Um, <laughs> for, for selfish reasons, as well as being a film fan. And I, I can say that I've seen Annette, and it's amazing. I can't wait for people to see it. It's wild. It's just what you would hope a Leos Carrick's Sparks film would be Absolutely. like. I like the fact, though, is that the first like director that wants to make a film with Sparks is Jacques Tati. Mm. And then the one who actually makes the Sparks film is Leos Carrick's. <laughs> That's that's a century of French filmmaking there. <laughs> it's taken that long for it to come around. Um, I'd like to just ask about music documentaries. You said you do have quite a diet for them as a, as a fan, as a, as a film viewer. Did you have any in mind as this project was percolating maybe about what you wanted to do or what to do differently? Because I do like that you have quite early on, uh, you play with some of the... Um, the tropes and cliches of rock journalism and rock documentaries about ripping up the rule book, pulling back a curtain, shining a light and all that. So do you have any films in mind when all of those things are coming together? Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash post. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I mean, 
I don't want to point the finger at any particular documentary because that would be like mean to do so. But I guess if I had a, like a bugbear about music documentaries is, and this is not necessarily something that's a problem unless you happen to be new to the artist. So there are some documentaries I've watched two that I could name recently, but I will not mention them by name um, because I, I generally like them, but also I had prior knowledge of the, artist and i did think as i was watching it i was thinking if you didn't know their music would this documentary let you in and i feel like that's something that like sometimes there are like artists who are so big like the beatles or the rolling stones or bob dylan where you could assume that people already know half the stories and then you can kind of get quite macro with it um, you know, like the the recent Scorsese Rolling Thunder review mm. documentary is a good case in point is that you're probably not watching that documentary if you haven't already seen No Direction Home and Don't Look Back. Or like a lot of the Beatles documentaries, like Ron Howard can do a documentary just about the touring years because it's focusing on just one part of it because there are like 10 other ones to watch as well in a whole TV series. But I felt with Sparks that like it would be, I had to make it, as much of an introduction as it was a celebration because you want people to fall in love with them and you want to, you know, kind of like, if you're not a fan at the start, you would love people to be a fan at the end. And I don't think you can really do that and let, unless you let people in. And part of that was like spending a little longer with the music. It's probably the reason that it's slightly over two hours is because I sort of, wanted to make sure that you heard all the songs that you didn't just kind of just like skip through them. And sometimes you would stop to hear a song for a bit. So everybody could, like you said, like a sort of compilation album is like you get the measure of the band by hearing how they have developed and mutated over the years and how 1971 sparks is very different from 1981 sparks Mm. and so on. And, 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 that wouldn't work if you were just kind of like rattling through it in, in a way that you could do with a Beatles documentary saying, Hey, we all know what Penny Lane is. Mm. So let's just mm. move on, you know? Yeah. If I could ask you about one last bit of the film and it's a very small bit of the film, I'm a big Beatles fan. So of course the short animated interlude with John and Ringo as voiced by Simon Pegg and Nick Frost jumped out at me. It's a great anecdote in the first place about them seeing Sparks on telly, but please tell me about how that bit came together and getting Simon and Nick involved. Is it just that you need to have them in every one of your films as much as possible? Uh, I mean, I just thought it was... Uh, well, number one is that Simon does a really good John Lennon impersonation. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the extra on Shaun of the Dead where Simon Pegg and Peter Sarovanovich do one of the scenes as john lennon and paul mccartney i've not seen that i'll go and dig it out oh it's it i think it's called um what's it called i should know this it's not called the man who would be sean that's that's on that's oh that's another bit in that it's maybe it's just on the outtakes it's it's like it's peter serovenovich and simon Pegg do an entire scene as john lennon and paul mccartney wow um so I knew that like sort of Simon could do a great John Lennon. And so I guess like some of the things that are in the movie where there's great stories, but no archive and because sparks themselves have used animation and art in so much of their music videos and album covers, it was sort of a no brainer. And in fact, Joseph Wallace, who did the amazing stop motion video for Edith PF said it better than me from the hippopotamus album. Uh, he was doing the stop motion stuff. We had a a whole team of animators doing different things, like another guy called Greg McLeod, brilliant animator, did some of the other 2D animation. Joseph Wallace and his team did a lot of the 3D animation. And then we had some other amazing artists doing like the manga stuff. So, but it was was a a great story, but it's like, why don't we animate Mm -hmm. John Lennon and Ringo Starr watching Top of the Pops? So Simon did uh, the John Lennon bit. And I was going to ask Pete Serovanovich to do Ringo because Pete Serovanovich can do amazing impressions of all the Beatles. But I think Pete was busy with something and I couldn't really pin him down. So then I thought, well, why don't I just ask Nick? And um, the funny thing is Simon definitely watched the clip and has now seen the documentary. But Nick, to my knowledge, who I think was in the States shooting, had 
not I did not even watch the clip, but this is the funny thing with Nick Frost. So Nick Nick Frost as Ringo Starr says only one word. He says Hitler question <laughs> mark. And so I said to I called Nick and said, Hey man, I really need you to do this voiceover for my Sparks documentary. It's just one word. You could do it on your iPhone. So then I got this message, uh, a voice memo rather. And if you can imagine this, it's something that I should really release as an NFT or something like that. <laughs> it's just Nick Frost in Los Angeles, not having watched anything, not really understanding why, but just recording on a voice memo as Ringo Starr. Hitler? 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 And it just like goes on for about five minutes. And I was thinking this, and I just said, this is your finest work. (laughs) Edgar Wright, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much to Edgar Wright for joining us and geeking out about music and sparks and music documentaries in general. So before we kick off the review, here's a quick pricey, a quick synopsis of the film. How can one rock band be successful, underrated, hugely influential and criminally overlooked all at the same time? Edgar Wright makes his documentary debut with the Sparks Brothers, featuring commentary from celebrity fans such as Flea, Jane Wheedlin, Beck, Jason Schwartzman, Neil Gaiman and more. The film goes on a musical odyssey through five weird and wonderful decades, celebrating the legacy of Sparks, your favourite band's favourite band. So David, that's quite a tall order. Your favourite band's favourite band, introducing you to a, a, a band that have been working in many different genres over the years, five decades worth. Uh, did you know much about Sparks beforehand? Did this film convince you that they were the great lost cult band of the last 50 years? I think it certainly tries to. I mean, that's that's definitely its, its kind of mission statement is that, you know, Sparks are amazing. If you don't know them about if you don't know about them, then you should. And if you do know them about them, then you should you should know more um i i'd kind of i i'd sort of had a i think i had like three or four of their albums all from i think all from different decades um sort of like some of them sort of random charity shop pickups and a couple like that they're kind of seminal sort of i think one of their early albums kimono my house which is which is an incredible album um which which i which i which i very much liked and uh so yeah, my my uh, you know I I I knew, you know I I didn't know much about the the people I about Ron and Russell Mayo. They're quite kind of enigmatic. Um, I knew that like you know Russell Ron Mayo sat gl- glowering at his keyboard and has a has a kind of toothbrush moustache that makes him look like Charlie Chaplin. Hitler delete is applicable and uh, yeah they have they have a kind of almost cabaret sensibility to them. Um, the film is kind of interesting in that, I mean, it's quite it, on the surface. It's a very, it's a, it's a fairly straight music documentary, very, uh, you know, earnestly, unabashedly celebratory about them and their work. Um, it's quite, an, it's quite interesting in that it's sort of about artists who are very, who, who, like, it's, it's almost about that kind of like Sisyphean struggle of being an artist where. They kind of they're 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 sort of having these little successes and they're going back to zero and they're having a little success and going back to zero and it's like that they they do have a kind like that there is something quite um, interesting and almost a little bit tragic that comes through about their sort of like relentlessness to to to, to sort of proceed in this world that they've entered into um, like even when the chips are very much stacked against them I mean like you know like the, one of the interesting things is they kind of that they are very much kind of followers of fashion sometimes anticipating fashion but a lot of the time kind of they're like you know in the 80s they're pumping out new wave albums in the 90s they're doing like kind of house albums and uh you know now they're doing this kind of sort of neoclassical thing um that's that's quite unique and you know early days they were kind of known as a glam rock band so they're very like taking this core spark sensibility of like literate erudite lyrics and kind of Russell Mayo's quite kind of squeaky delivery and sort of flushing it through all these styles and you kind of and the 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 fact that the film is so kind of relentlessly completist that you know mm. it wants to give every little 
fragment of their career a shout out you do really get a sense of that kind of arc of their of their career um so yeah i mean it's uh it's it's, I enjoy, it's very enjoyable i thought yeah I, i've i've gone sort of both ways in terms of the, the, the structure of this it's chronological it's mostly talking heads based it really is i liken it to the sort of greatest hits or best of you'd get in the 90s a double disc where there are two tracks from every single album uh, it just it goes to like 40 tracks in the end and it's you know when you're looking at that or maybe listening to it it's quite a full meal but then afterwards what better way to really capture that as you say the dogged resilience of the band through boom and bust to just keep going try something different try something new and the thing that was a real real revelation to me so growing up watching top of the pops documentaries on bbc4 um, i've seen them performing this town ain't big enough for the both of us in the mid 70s many many times with many many talking heads saying gosh what is this why is hitler playing the keyboards but knowing that they have a whole other career in the 80s where they almost abandon the uk where they were popular in the 70s and then start courting a sort of west coast um almost college radio new wave type of audience and that's where the jason schwartzmans and becks come into it that's really eye-opening and fascinating and then as you say david a sort of come back in the 90s and beyond working with franz ferdinand in the 2000s what yeah there's no better way to get that story across i suppose but lillian were you a sparks fan did you know much about them did this sort of approach work for you yeah i mean i think i first heard about sparks um when Leos Carax was making Annette and and um I told my dad that I was I was watching this this documentary about Sparks and he said oh they were that weird one from Top of the Pops uh, and I was like yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that's basically what I I, I learned from this um but I did I have I did I didn't actually realize that they'd done um Seduction of Ingmar Bergman which was something I'd listened to um a few years ago because that that's just the idea of a sort of opera um, about film is very much what I love. Um, and I saw Annette last week and I absolutely loved it. And I really, I love that every song that they write feels so different, um, of a completely different style. Um, it's very operatic in that they don't care if you can't hum along to it. It's it's music to service a narrative, um, which which I find very compelling. Um, and I think this film sort of captures that a bit. I mean, it's 140 minutes long, which which is you know that's that's nearing Frederick Wiseman level length of documentary. <laughs> it's 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 quite it's it's quite um, a hefty film that really could probably have been done in 90 minutes if, um, if they'd had maybe a few less talking heads because there's like 80 people being interviewed for this film, um, which is quite a staggering number. And quite a significant number of those probably don't need to be there. Um, there's people like Jonathan Ross showing up to talk about them. And I just kept thinking, what, what was the reason for this interview? Um, they're also shot in black and white for no reason, which is something I have a pet mm-hmm. hate for. Um, no, I think I think my favourite thing about this film is the animation, um, which, which is something that I haven't seen many people talk about in relation to this film. There's this really lovely sort of, a lot of documentaries try to restage things with actors, but this documentary does it through a really eclectic range of animation styles, from like um, paper cut to hand drawn animation and claymation. And um, there's a fun cameo from Nick Frost and um, Simon Pegg as um, I think it's as good as the Beatles, isn't it? It's like John Lennon and um, it's John Lennon and Ringo Starr. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, so I, I really enjoyed those aspects, and I really enjoyed. Um, when they were looking at like the performance aspect of of what they do, um, particularly um, when they were saying that they did a a sort of con- a, a series of concerts of all of their albums back to back, I really enjoyed that element a lot more than just sort of a lot of men talking about how much they used to love Sparks. Um. <laughs> yes, I, I suppose that's really when you think about what does what would Edgar Wright do with the music documentary form, and that is. What does he do in his fiction films? He loves to be 
um, he loves to recommend, he loves to expose you to something that he's clearly very passionate about. And I definitely went away from Scott Pilgrim versus the world buying the soundtrack. And there are lots of deep cuts on there. I remember Spaced had an amazing soundtrack. Or He also loves collaborators. He has his returning friends. And this was probably the opportunity when you say, why is Jonathan Ross in there for a second or Mark Gatiss in there for a second? I did have a bet with myself about which of the sort of early middle-aged or middle-aged British people will be wheeled out to say I saw them on top of the pops and it was Mark Gatiss sorry spoilers folks but, <laughs> so that they are probably the Edgar Wrightisms in here the fact that you will have flashes of animation and great sort of stylistic flourishes whilst also telling this great you know two, two and a half hour long as you say Lillian talking head documentary that tries to convince you this band is great and it sounds like and it sounds like they were it was quite successful in that in that sense but let's put some scores on this David what did you make of it yeah I'd probably I'd probably give I thought it was like a you know a very enjoyable romp um I'd kind of you know I mean I almost like going back to what Lillian says I almost feel that like I, I agree with you about the talk there being too many talking heads and a lot uh, quite a few of them are not really adding to the to the much to the conversation but I I feel that there's like there's there's even more stuff that you um that, that, that that's like like the fact that they were involved in all these film projects as well I I almost think you could make another film about all the film projects that they almost were involved with like massive mm-hmm. anime projects almost making a film with Jack Tati um you know it's it's that stuff I find is just fascinating um the fact that it was it just kind of all came to nothing as well i mean it's just it's just you know the 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 film doesn't sort of lean too hard on 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 the sort of tragic element of their career which is kind of which is which is i guess in the in the spirit of their own music i guess um so i'd I'd probably give it fours across the board yeah it was it was uh it was a a romp and uh, i you know i i i I really i like sparks i like what they're about and i'm glad that you know i for me, it's like a film that I think is doing a kind of public service in a way and getting <laughs> getting, getting the good word out. So it gets extra yeah. marks for that. Lillian, what's your scores? Yeah, um, I, I, I did enjoy it. Um, and I certainly, as, as, as David said, like the stuff about the project with um, Tati was, was particularly compelling. Um, and I think, I think it's great that they've been able to work with um, Leos Carax now and that, you know, they've, they've, They've sort of put all of that energy that they've got in their music making into into a big operatic film project, which I absolutely loved. Um, I, su- I suppose this this film does sort of build up to that in a way that does sort of feel like a prelude or or, or almost a trailer for Annette. It does sort of end at the point where they're making that film. So I, I'd probably, yeah, I think I'd give it threes across the board for this one um it it was just a bit too long um and there mm-hmm. there were too many aspects that i was just thinking why is why is this here but as david said there's there's plenty to sort of enjoy even if you don't really know who sparks are or care about them yeah i i think i'm i'm more on david's side i think it's just fours across the board i love music documentaries particularly this sort of music documentary I'll watch any day of the week about a band who you've always heard of but you know their catalogue is a bit too big to get your head around and it is a bit of a public service as you say David my maxim when it comes to music documentaries about bands is or even biopics about bands is could I just spend this time instead reading Wikipedia and listening to a couple of their albums or reading allmusic.com and seeing what what the big hitters are and actually this really does give you that overview i may not fully buy all of uh, edgar and his pals uh, reasonings about why every album is significant but <laughs> it, it at least now sort of know the sweep of this uh, long career and yeah in, in retrospect i've been listening to sparks almost every day since watching this documentary and particularly that new wave period in the early 80s it, it's um if you're fans of you know, Devo or the Go Go's. That, that those albums are great. I'd recommend checking those out. And my my my, highest... my top cut is uh, number one in heaven. Their their mm-hmm. Giorgio Moroder synth album. That's that's yeah. That's amazing. That's that's my fave. And I suppose the highest praise you can give a film like this is if it then makes you afterwards go and listen to the band and find something you 
not appreciated before. I definitely want to go and check out The Seduction of Ingmar Bergman. I remember that being on the radio, but didn't hear it at the time. But it sounds like I need to dedicate some time to that. But that's The Sparks Brothers. A bit more of a solid recommendation from us this week compared to the Suicide Squad listeners. But if you do watch either of those films, let us know what you make of them at the usual channels at LWLies on Twitter or truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email. Up next, a quick film club off the back of our conversation with Edgar where he mentioned one film that he would single out in the music documentary genre, Anvil, the story of Anvil. A quick synopsis here. At age 14, Toronto school friends Steve Lips Kudlow and Rob Reiner made a pact to rock together forever. Their band Anvil went on to become the demigods of Canadian metal, releasing one of the heaviest albums in metal history, 1982's Metal on Metal. The album influenced a musical generation, including Metallica, Slayer and Anthrax, that went on to sell millions of records, but Anvil's career took a different path, straight to obscurity. And this documentary picks up on their story 26 years later, following a latch, la, following a last dish, following a last ditch quest for elusive fame and fortune. Um, so, David, um, you talked about how the Sparks Brothers documentary shows the band just doggedly pursuing their musical craft over the years, whether they're in, in or out of vogue. This is a film about a, a, a band that very much went out of vogue and never really got back in, right? yeah um it's it's yeah i i could feel myself anticipating this actually when i was saying that um just just those those uh those shots of at the beginning of the film of lips working for a catering company with his like anvil beanie on and uh going through the me- the menus um uh <laughs> uh yeah it's it's it is a it is a kind of it's a strange film, actually. I, I haven't seen it since it came out in two thousand and eight, and and I kind of, I'm the, I had a colleague who absolutely loved it, and it was one. Of, it was his like film of the year, and I and and I and I think that my memory of it is maybe like had leached onto his memory of it a bit because I I'd kind of thought of it very fondly, and actually seeing it again, I'd kind of I I I, I was I kind of thought I love the first half of the film where it's kind of follow where you go on their tour and it's more kind of tra- it's got a kind of tra- um co- like comic vibe to it because it's it's all going wrong and there's all these very st- he captures like on the the director Sasha Gervais he captures all these kind of little conversations and very very funny things that are happening on the tour especially with the kind of um the the, the sort of tour manager who's kind of working pro bono for them just cuz she kind of loves loves what they do um and the second half of the film just gets i i just i've forgotten but was reminded on this rewatch it gets like quite maudlin and it's quite it gets more tragic and like there is like you know that 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 there is this kind of dream of like him wanting to work with like the the, the lips wanting to reconnect with the uh the producer who who made that who made metal on metal for this new album their 13th album and uh and having and basically having to stump up like 13k to be able to do it and you know that the, there is this kind of like well in reality this is this feels like a kind of full stop i mean there's like that you know you don't have recourse like rational recourse to do it and he ends up kind of taking the money off his sister in a and you kind of like you, you're watching and you think wow this you, I can imagine this setup has probably happened like three or four times and maybe a couple of times since. Um, I think, I think they've actually, they actually like the, it's the irony of this in, in, in the same way as a sparks doc, I think is that after Anvil came out, they, they had this big, quite prolonged spurt of popularity. They suddenly got invited onto into all these festivals mm-hmm. and they, 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 they'd become this kind of cult item that people, you know, these kind of underdog, band that people loved um so so yeah you you do have this weird kind of function for the film where it's kind of on one hand it's making them not look very good and 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 kind of like amateurish and 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 sort of silly and then the other it's kind of actually served quite a sly marketing purpose for them and you kind of like you're kind of left to sort of stand back and wonder well how how 
how much did they know about that? Well, I, I, Sasha Gervaisi was their roadie hmm. in the 80s, so had a quite a close relationship with them, and I'm sure that was part of his plan was, you know, he loves the band, loves them, but also maybe bring them along on the screenings tour, get them to festivals, uh, wheel them out, in a similar way to how... Rodriguez benefited from searching for Sugar Man around a similar time. But Lillian, what, what did you make of, of Anvil? Yeah, it's it's interesting, David, saying that there's, there's this is a film of sort of two halves because I, I knew very little about it. I'd sort of heard of it um, be- before watching it. Um, and I did just find the first half very funny. And I kept wondering if this was... I didn't realise that this was actually a documentary. I thought it was like a mockumentary out of spinal tap and I thought that the fact that the um, drummer's called Rob Reiner I thought was absolutely hilarious I thought I thought that I thought that was an intentional gag um and then yeah it just sort of changes it goes from being this sort of we're sort of laughing almost with them on this mad tour that they're doing to actually being quite quite a dark and depressing film that these are men in their 50s who just feel like they've never really um achieved what they wanted to achieve. I suppose it's sort of what um, Mia Hansen-Love was doing with um, Eden as, as a sort of fall and more fall without any rise in, in, in the music industry and how that that is just the story for most bands and, and, and groups that because there are so many of them. And I, yeah, I think by the end of it, I just found myself feeling really quite depressed. Um, I'm glad they had some success at the end when they went to Japan. That was nice. Um, and I'm glad that the film sort of served as a revival for them. I think I think that, you know, they'd really been through it and they probably deserved um, to see some of that success. Um, but yeah, it was just this really strange experience of not quite knowing when I was laughing with and when I was supposed to be laughing at that I... And, I, and mm. the, the latter makes me very uncomfortable at least with spinal tap you know that it's actors and and you know you're allowed to laugh at them but um in this case it just felt a bit i don't know i just felt a bit uncomfortable at times that's interesting because it is made from from a position of great love and affection for the band for the their their long-suffering long-standing fans uh, it, it really strikes me and we don't have much time here so i have spoken about this this film at, at length on the 90 minutes or less film fest podcast if listeners want to hear what i make of this because I, I think this is an absolute music documentary gem particularly within films about metal which is you know, for every Metallica, and similarly to what you're saying about Eden, for every Daft Punk, there are going to be so many other musical artists out there who don't make it, don't go the distance and have to then, do you give up on the dream or do you take catering jobs in order to then play in your local bar for diminishing audiences and so on. But there's something about heavy metal where it's on stage, you're the rock god and it projects this hyper, ultra cartoonish masculinity or at least overcharged... um, machismo but then behind that who are the people behind that and we 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 see that in this film and it's such a fascinating flip side to something like some kind of monster which is metallica's um you know we're we're a multi-platinum band and now we have to have therapy uh sort of sort of film anvil is very different there are some very key scenes between lips and rob where they have known each other for 40 years they're friends to the end but they just can't relate to one another so there's something there about friendships and relationships creative or otherwise there's so much in this film it's very interesting to hear about that film of two halves aspects and maybe i need to go back and i've I've forgotten that part but listeners we'd love to know what you make of anvil the story of anvil as well as any of the other films we've talked about this week any other music documentaries you'd recommend please send us in your tips maybe we'll cover them in a film club in a future episode that's at lw lies or truth and movies at tcolondon.com lillian david thank you so much for joining me this week it's been a wild ride from suicide squad through sparks to, to anvil uh, it's been such a pleasure films next week zola based on the twitter thread Stillwater and Film Club is a Betty Davis classic tying in with a re-release from the BFI, Now Voyager. Listeners, please subscribe wherever you pod and if your podcast player of choice lets you leave reviews, we'd love you if you left one for us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.